My name is Parker Moss. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, even anger. And there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, or genomics. Now, today we're doing something a little different. We are sharing for posterity the discussion that I hosted earlier this month at the Genomics England Research Summit. My discussion was with the world-renowned Daphne Collar. We explored the use of AI and machine learning in drug discovery. We discussed the value of multimodal analysis. We explored some of the challenges of causal inference and target validation with unsupervised machine learning methodologies. And we discussed the recent partnership between Genomics England and Daphne's drug discovery company, Incitro. I really hope that you will enjoy this discussion as much as I did. Welcome to the G Word. Daphne, it's such a pleasure to have you on stage. And in case there is anyone in the audience who doesn't know that the litany of achievements of Daphne, I'm going to just run through them <clears throat> very, very briefly. So Daphne graduated at a ridiculously young age and became a professor in the computer science department in Stanford, where you were a much-loved professor for 18 years. So that's a major commitment to education. You also, on the side, it seems, founded Coursera, which is, the, is this massive online educational community. I've done one of your courses, so you've enriched my life. Thank you for that. Um, and that's now a very, very successful company. Um, Daphne was the, the founding chief computing officer at Calico, which is Google's um, drug discovery company focusing on aging, and most recently has founded Incitro, uh, which is a, a fascinating drug discovery company that we're going to hear much more about. You picked up on your travels the MacArthur Genius Award, so you're a bona fide genius. Oh and even more ingenious than that, you have become one of the latest research and also technology partners of Genomics England. We're so proud to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Parker, for that embarrassing introduction. And it's a real, <laughs> and it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's an honor to be partnering with you. Thank you, Daphne. Um, so you started in, in computer science. Um, I think you had a very broad uh, kind of research um, aperture, but you focused recently on drug discovery. And what I would really love to know is why drug discovery and why now? Why did you decide to focus your, your research there? So if I can go back a little bit, my interest in bringing together machine learning and biomedical data actually goes back um, over 20 years at this point to the late 90s when, as a machine learning researcher, I was looking for data sets that were both technically more interesting and also more aspirational than some of the ones that were available back then to machine learning researchers. And so I started working actually initially on some epidemiological data, seems very timely today. That was tuberculosis epidemiology and then on the first microarray data sets, the first human genome, and so on and so forth. And always the challenge with doing the research that we really wanted to do was the lack of enough high quality data. I mean, at that point, you felt privileged if you had a data set with a couple hundred samples. That was considered large. And um, we're now in a world where there is this abundance of data, which is only, I think, the beginning to what we're likely to be able to see in the, in the coming years. And at the same time, time, of course, on the other side, we have this um, incredible set of machine learning methods that are able to make sense and extract insights from increasingly large amounts of data and many other areas of, of human endeavor. And so this seems to be a moment in time when those two tidal waves are about to come together in a way that 
I think offer us the opportunity to unlock some of the underlying secrets, the complexities that, uh, that underlie human health and human disease. And maybe just to highlight where I think those data sets are coming from, I think they're coming from two quite distinct but yet synergistic sources. One, of course, is the human data, the clinical data, such as the one that you're creating at Genomics England and are also available in uh, other places as well with the growth, for example, of electronic health records and, and such. And the other is with the availability of increasingly sophisticated lab techniques that allow us to create um, in vitro model systems that are human-derived, human-relevant, and in a way that allows us to manipulate those systems, really start to interrogate disease and therapeutic interventions and try and predict, which is kind of what we like, what we aim to do at in Citro, from the lab experiments and from the human clinical data, what will happen if we make a particular intervention in a particular human being. Hence the name in situ, in vitro, yes. and in silica. Exactly. Nicely concatenated. So you mentioned um, you know, the value of big data. I'm the first to agree that big things are good. Uh, but I, I just want to drill into that a little bit more because, I mean, for example, at Genomics England, we have, we, we're very proud of our colorectal cancer data set, about 4,000 patients, all with tumor normal pairs. It's a, it's a huge data set in, in life sciences terms. But it's, it's small compared to the kind of things that you would have been playing with in academia, like ImageNet, that had tens of millions of data sets. So even in the large data sets that we curate, is that enough to power uh, an unsupervised neural net? So first, we believe the answer is yes, and that's for two reasons. One is that one of the techniques that the machine learning community has been able to, um, to really push forward in the last few years is the ability to use large amounts of data that are not directly relevant to the problem at hand and learn in some ways the language of images and then um, undergo a process called fine-tuning in which you take that representation, that language that you learned on cats and dogs and airplanes and things that have nothing to do with histopathology, for example, and use that as a way of creating that representation on which histopathology, a modest amount of histopathology, like 4,000 images, can be used to create a, a really robust representation. The other nice thing about histopathology is that unlike images of cats and dogs where each cat is an image, um, here the images are incredibly richly structured and there's each piece of the image is in some ways itself a sample. You can think of each cell in some sense as being uh, something that gives you more information. And so it's not as little information as it might appear just from the number 4,000 on top of what I said earlier. So I think people often are surprised that cats and dogs come up in drug discovery conversations, <laughs> but it is true through transfer learning that we really have learned to, to, to transfer some of the features of those images online, of people submitting their own pets uh, online. That, that's one um, kind of technique that you've used. Um, I, I know that something at the core of Incitra is also your use of uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, yes. iPSCs. And maybe you could explain a little bit about how that's an important part of generating this, this large number so that you can learn biological features. So uh, induced pluripotent stem cells together with technologies like CRISPR and microscopy and single cell RNA-seq are some of the tools that um, t incredibly talented life scientists and bioengineers have come up with in the last decade or so and really been able to create a robust and usable toolkit that allows you to create in a dish effectively a diverse population of cells with different genetics, whether it's different genetics because these are iPSCs that are extracted from patients with a different, with different genetic burden of disease, or you could introduce 
um, driver mutations, for example, into those induced pluripotent stem cells and interrogate in a way that is a, you know, end of one case control, which is you have the, what we call an isogenic pair, where you have the genome and the genome with the mutation, and you see what specifically this mutation does to an incredibly rich and multifaceted set of cellular phenotypes, so you can really start to interrogate in a human-relevant system what each mutation does, so that genotype-phenotype function, which otherwise you're left to infer when you're dealing with, you know, natural variation, you're left to infer that from, do we have enough patients with, um, with the mutation and are they sufficiently well matched the patients without? Here you can really do that one-to-one -one experiment. And I think that really provides us with the ability to shed very deep light on what each of those mutations does and maybe even illuminate some of those variants of unknown significance um, that we are currently struggling to, um, to identify and interpret. So I, I think something that people um, struggle to conceptually understand is how you go from that kind of bottom-up look in this, you mentioned IPSCs, but also I know that when you're looking at large images, you decompose them into small tiles or patches. Mm -hmm. How you go from that bottom-up view of, of a patient, um, but ultimately you're trying to make predictions about whole humans, their yes. response to treatment, their prognostic um, predictions. So, so how do you collapse that, that very complex um, granular data into a prediction about the, the likely prognosis or response for, for a whole human in clinic? Yes, so um, so that is, I think, one of the really interesting things that we've been able to do is, is to move away from what is often done, which is, rely on clinician annotations as a ground truth for um, training these machine learning models. Because what we found is that while clinicians have often a really wonderful insight about patients, they're also anchoring on things that they've been trained um, to look for. And oftentimes, human biology surprises us with things that we didn't train our clinicians to look for. And sometimes those surprises are some of the most important insights as in terms of the, for instance, the identification of new therapeutic interventions. So we use an approach called weekly supervised learning in which we don't um, train to the clinician annotations at the start. We take the images and we um, basically use a whole suite of machine learning tools that, I'm not going, that we don't have time to get into in order to learn without that anchoring the language of what we see in those images, the language of histopathology, the language of MRI data, the, the language of proteomics in the blood, and just by looking at the axes of variation in a natural population. And what we found, interestingly enough, is that if you have enough of those samples, even without that clinician annotation, in fact, better without that clinician annotation, you can now take a small, relatively small number of clinician annotations and learn oftentimes a very simple, what's called linear model that maps this language to say clinical outcomes of, of patients. And that when you do that, you sometimes find associations and insights that you actually don't if you were to train your models to the clinician outcomes at the start. And I find that to be a really exciting opportunity to kind of let biology speak its own language before you introduce that layer of human interpretation. Interesting. So you're taking kind of a radically empirical view of biology, thanks to large data sets, but it sounds like you are kind of elegantly interfacing hu human prior knowledge in as well in, in, in a linear manner. 
semana. Absolutely. And the other thing that we really like is we love using genetics as ground truth. So the ability to then take that embedding that we learned or that language that we learned for histopathology and ask, do we find in there associations to, say, genetic variants um, that oftentimes you don't see when you train to the to say the clinician annotations and and uh, and so the genetics to, to in our in our eyes is in some ways a north star to have we learned something that is truly meaningful Correct. Right. Well, we're going to go and talk about the, the kind of modality of genetics and yes. ground truth in a minute. But before we Sorry. go there, in, in, in the kind of challenge of drug discovery, you know, you start off with target identification and, and with all this data you have, you have access to kind of exquisite target information. But we all know anyone involved in drug discovery that then validating those targets, saying something not just associative but causal about those targets is such a challenge. Um, how have you gone from just strong associations through your machine learning to making kind of causal inferences about about drugs. So um, this actually again comes back to genetics as sort of the uh, the core driver of our therapeutic strategy. You can get at causality via the genetics using techniques such as Mendelian randomization and others because in human observational studies genetics is the closest we can come to causality because you don't get by and large to intervene in a human until the very end stage of drug discovery, which is clinical trials. So if you want to get at causality earlier in the process, which of course is absolutely essential because therapeutic interventions are intrinsically interrogating causality as opposed to just correlations. So that's one place where we get causality. The other place where we get that is, of course, via our creation of these in vitro model systems of human disease, where you get to introduce, for example, a candidate driver mutation or a candidate protective mutation into these iPSC-derived models and ask, does it revert the cellular system from what our machine learning tells us is a disease-like state to what our machine learning tells us is a healthy cellular state. And if that intervention does that, we know that that is something that is in fact a causal um, change because we introduce that mutation into the in vitro system. Okay. And it's really, uh, and, and of course the big challenge and where um, we really like to push the technology is how do we gain conviction that the in vitro model system is truly predictive of human clinical outcome. Right, and in a sense, that's how our conversation began, because um, at Genomics England, we focus on in cancer capturing the DNA and, and also the longitudinal clinical data in patients, but we've realized how important spatiality of the tumor microenvironment is alongside the molecular features of the tumor. And so we've started bringing um, uh, imaging, whole slide images and histopathology and also radiology images into our data set. Um, and we realized that we needed some help uh, from a, a terrific engineering team like the one that you've brought together. So maybe you could just tell us a little about the partnership we've formed and, and what makes yeah. you excited about that? Yeah, so we're incredibly excited about this partnership and what we are basically building together with Genomics England is a multimodal search capability that allows researchers and clinicians to interrogate the Genomics England data set in a way that um, leverages that language of, say, images um, that we've learned and over time as you accumulate other modalities, perhaps those as well, and being able to ask the question, here I have, for example, an image that maybe is unusual or maybe I'm trying to understand what I'm seeing there. Can I find others that are like that? So if you look for pixel level similarity, you get complete nonsense. No two histopathology images are actually 
similar to each other at the pixel level. So you have to define a notion of similarity that in some ways is clinically meaningful. And that weakly supervised language that we've learned that really speaks to when are two things similar because they are relating to the same biology is something that allows researchers to create a cohort of patients that is similar in a biologically meaningful way and interrogate, for example, the genetics of that population. A clinician faced with a sample that they're trying to understand, I've never seen something like this before, what does it mean, can also look and see if there's others in the cohort that are similar to that, maybe connect with the clinician who dealt with that patient and ask, what um, what did you do with that patient? Do you understand what happened? Was the treatment beneficial to them and so on? And so this is um, something that is beneficial, obviously, to researchers and to the patients that are part of the Genomics England community. And from our perspective, the data that's been accumulated in the Genomics England cohort is just an incredible treasure trove to hopefully identify therapeutic interventions that can be beneficial to patients down the line. Yeah, it's a thrilling idea. And just to be clear to the research community that we're speaking to today, um, so we've just started work on this project together. This will allow um, researchers to, f to find similar patients, but not based on phenotypic um, features, which is the usual thing, but actually a, uh, based on sophisticated um, imaging features, which will be embedded yes. in our data set. So we're working on that together, and then we're going to make that available to the research community as a resource. So we've just got a couple of minutes left, and I'd like to just slightly skew the conversation towards the participants that are listening today. Yes. Um, you know, we, we've both experienced the, the cl clinical pathway ourselves, and I think one of the frustrations um, for participants is that drugs that are discovered today in cancer, for example, $2.5 billion to discover a drug takes 10 years, 95% failure rate. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy business model. Yes. How do you think that these new technologies and really your new philosophy in drug discovery is going to make lives better for patients? So we believe that much of the drug discovery that has happened up until now has been driven by intuitions that scientists have had about, oh, this pathway, this gene might be implicated in disease, or sometimes it's even just serendipitous findings that happen by chance observation. We believe that the data that are currently being collected alongside the kind of much more systematic interrogation techniques for exploring those data can provide a much more uh, rigorous approach for really um, testing hypotheses and asking what do the data tell us about which therapeutic interventions are likely to be beneficial and for which patient populations because I think a lot of the failures that we're seeing is because many of the diseases that remain of unmet need are actually quite heterogeneous and so effectively we're trying to cure multiple diseases with one therapeutic and then we're surprised that we're not seeing the statistically significant signal that we're looking for. So hopefully the kind of really large um, rich data sets that are being created alongside these machine learning methods will help point us in the right direction without being um, subject to the um, sort of hypothesis-driven um, and sort of oftentimes intuitive approaches that have led us astray. So this is really a hypothesis-free approach yeah. to disease. I know you focus on liver disease and neurological disease. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your clinical focus um, in the future and, and also where, where we genomics can fit in with that. So um, the cohort that's been created here is wonderful in two ways. First of all, it creates for us an opportunity to hopefully make a similar type of impact in the oncology space. And so we're really excited about that. Um, and then the rare disease cohort is, I think, one of the most 
exciting opportunities to truly interrogate that gene function relationship because oftentimes what you see in that cohort is the human analog of a knockout, effectively, yes. um, a human knockout experiment. And if you could figure out for some of these patients, what is it that their disease is telling us about the function of individual genes, we can hopefully help not only they and others like them, but also learn something about that gene function relationship that might help people who have a less high penetrance version that is also driven by similar genetics and, and maybe even help address a larger patient population. That's a really exciting prospect. Yes. I can't believe we've already had 20 minutes on the stage. <laughs> uh, I could have spoken to you all day. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us, Daphne. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to this outtake from the Genomics England Research Summit, presented to you on the G Word. You can find out more about Incitro on their website. And if you have views on these topics or have a person in mind that you'd like us to interview, do please write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you've enjoyed listening, then giving us a five-star review really does help other people find out about the series. We appreciate your support very much. And until next time, I'm Parker Moss. See you on the next episode of The G Word.